Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to a new year of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I know what you're saying. Don, what's with the music? What's with the melodramatic piano music? Where's our beloved theme song that's been around for five years as of two days ago? That's right. January 7, 2018 was when this show premiered, and uh, we are now in the year number five. And after all this time, why? Where'd the theme song go? Well, friends, good news, bad news. Good news is, thanks to you guys and all the people who support all of our videos and our fishing content and everything else on YouTube, we finally got to where we need to be for YouTube to start monetizing us. But before they do, they got to review our content. And boy, let me tell you. We've been getting a lot of copyright <laughs> restrictions on our theme song. Damn lawyers. Now, when I worked in radio and we hired all these people, consultants, if you will, Facebook consultants and this and that, um, they would tell you that any song recorded prior to 1962 was not eligible for copyright. That's why a lot of these... Streaming radio stations who do a lot of talk, maybe sports, when they go to commercial, they might play a song, and it's probably from prior 62, and that's why. Well, even though the song I used was recorded sometime in 1938, <laughs> apparently the recording I used was a recording that was recorded of that recording that was done sometime in the probably mid-2000s, thus for someone owns a copyright on it. So what does that mean? That means once we make it through the trial period, any potential revenue this podcast would uh, build by streaming on YouTube, all that money would go to the people who own the copyright on that background song. So we love that theme song, but we don't love it that much. Yeah, we don't love it that much. But here's where the wiki gets stick it, or the sticky gets wicked, or however that's saying. YouTube and other places, they offer public domain songs. Okay, cool. Royalty-free songs. I've been down this road. So what happens, Henry, is you find you a song you like, you... You record it, you use it, and you build it in your videos, and at some point, that artist up and sells that song. <laughs> and then later on, a video that you put up three years ago is getting copyright dinged for a song that was free three years ago. <laughs> and so, anywho, we are in a search for uh, a new theme song, but in the meantime, that's what we got. And so, happy New Year's and happy birthday, fella. How are you? Hey, thanks. Feeling um, any younger? Well, yeah, no. <laughs> I definitely don't feel younger, but... Oh, come on. You know, I saw you riding that mountain bike, taking those rollers. You're not. You're yeah. Not... Well, you know, I, I, I do what I can to try to feel young, but. Uh, I know, but you got to think, thank God to modern day technology, medicine and all that, because we're doing things at the age of 44, 45, 50, 51, 52, that when we were kids, well, perfect example. We all remember the movie Cocoon, right? About all the old people dying in the old age homes until the alien egg came and found in the pool. Yeah. Of course. Uh, most of those were. 50 i think i think uh, the main uh actor on that was 55 when he shot that movie so i'm just saying we're us old folk are a lot younger nowadays thanks to modern day medicine and allows us to go mountain biking and running and all the crazy crap that we like to do i'll tell you something else that, that helps us go mountain biking don that would be called the e-bike the electric mountain bike oh you have an e-bike no sweet. but i'm thinking about getting one man I, there's not I swore I would never think about those things. I thought they were just a complete bastardization of the sport. But here, not far from where we live, they've built a, they call it a ride park. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it's pretty hardcore dirt jumps and stuff yeah. like that. Um, 
and I mean, man, there the inclines to get up to the peaks mm-hmm. where you drop down are like that in yeah. some places. So when I went out there, I took Jack out there. <clears throat> of course, he's he's ripping up and down, you know, with with a with no fear of anything. Um, but they also rent e-bikes. Okay, well, Jack, of course, has had his regular mountain bike, the same one that he races in the school. Now races. let me pause real quick. What's the elevation like in your town, your state? When people don't think Alabama, they don't think ski resorts. Well, no, but I mean, you, we've got some steep mountains around here, man. A lot of good single track and. Oh God, parts. yeah, yeah. I mean, this there is so much single track being built around us. I mean, it's it's central I, Alabama is a very strong mountain bike area. I haven't rid single track since I left Ohio in 2004. I had a GT Triple Triangle um, Timberland bike. Um, now I just uh-huh. have a mountain bike road bike hybrid that i ride around on the concrete because down here it's all sand but anyhow so he was uh, wanting to rent an e-bike well no i did okay he he no he he actually uh dare i say this on our show i don't think this is anything bad when i told him i was thinking about it after renting the one out there and ripping up and down and just seeing how much ground you can cover uh, I told him I was thinking about getting one, and he said, so uh, you're going to have a surgeon remove your balls? <laughs> good for him. He's a purist. I like that. He is a purist. But, but one no, can I make mean, the argument those things are probably a little bit heavier than a modern-day mountain bike. I mean, No, they, they are, although they are getting lighter. Um, but I don't want to get too deep off into it, but uh, the store that I'm in, the shop that I'm going to buy it from let me – a few days after that, they let me borrow one for an afternoon. And I got to tell you, man, I covered some trail I haven't been on since Jack was a baby. Nice. Yeah, I watch a but, guy on YouTube named Sam Pilgrim. He's a professional writer over in Britain, and he's getting older in age. So he's he's expanding her his horizons, but every once in a while, he'll pull out an e-bike. And they, they, look, they look wicked fun. You can't even, I mean, now they've got them done to where you can't even look at them and tell that they're, you know, to somebody who doesn't, know the sport that just oh it's another mountain bike yeah you know but um anyway yeah i think i'm gonna get one it's it's i mean look man it becomes less about semantics and splitting hairs and oh you're not you know you're you're riding an e-bike it's but that goes away with age i mean i i started skateboarding in the second grade i didn't quit until i was 21 i've rid half pipes pools and ramps and streets and everything else and i was the same guy who much like your son, and God love him, I would say longboards or skateboards for people who can't skate <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm a guy who can ollie, kick, flip, late shove and all that stuff. But as you get older, I can kind of understand the necessity of a longboard. So, you know, gatekeeping and purism is great for teenagers, um, but as you get older and stop giving a damn about what other people think, that stuff tends to go to the wayside. What, exactly, and that's what I mean by it becomes less about semantic. What I mean by that is it's about life experience. It's about if, your knees, damn it. it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if but if getting one of those things enables me to spend three hours ripping some trail that, that's up on top of Oak Mountain that I typically wouldn't be able to get to or would take mm-hmm. me, you know, forever to get to. Or trying to maintain the pace of a 15-year-old. You know, there's no way you can keep up with him. Oh, God, no. Going up. Coming no, down, possibly him. going up, but no. But on that thing, you, it gives you more of a chance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's about just getting out there more. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely uh, probably going to go that route. But um, but they they're making them pretty good now, man. I mean, they're 
they're becoming more and more trail capable uh, with the geometry and the components and all that. So, but anyway, are you a big New Year's resolution guy? No, not really. I don't. I don't get into that shit. To be honest with you, me neither. I never have. But um, starting in December, I've started to get back into running because I used to run quite a bit. Then I suffered some injuries, but I don't know. I think this year because I am getting older too, and I don't know how much longer my body hold up. I did run a half marathon in 2020 because my Savage race got canceled. I trained so hard for that that uh, I might try to run a, either a half or a full marathon sometime this year and see how my body holds up to that nonsense. Yeah. But other the, than that, the thing, go, ahead. go ahead. No, the thing. No, I was just. Did you freeze up on me? Oh, I think it was internet for us, ladies and gentlemen. Will he come back? Come back to me, Henry. We're live here, sir. You're oh, not, can oh. you not hear me? Yeah, you're back. You froze up. All right. You, 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 full, you froze you... up. Yeah, but I could hear you. Okay. Cool. You went in full max headroom. Yeah, it says my internet connection is unstable. Do you have me okay now? Yeah, you're good now. Okay. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Real quick, uh, something that's starting to pick up, we're going to do a lot more of, mail call. That's mail call at WTSP.com. We want to hear from you. This email is regarding What's the Scuttlebutt episode 131. I like that when people put in the headers and the titles so we know what they're talking about. Regarding the private archives of photographs of the attack and the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, if I understand correctly, my great-grandfather was on, was on a seagoing tugboat during the attack on Pearl Harbor as a lifer in the U.S. Navy. Within days after the Pearl Harbor attack, he was part of the salvage operation to bring up the USS Ogola. Back to the surface with a large experimental bladder of air. His son, my grandfather, served on the original USS Essex during the Cold War. For all I know, my great-grandfather is somewhere in some of those pictures. If there are existing pictures of the USS Olga being resurfaced and salvaged. Our family, from that side of the family, try it again. Our family, from that side of the family, is also related to the Hesseluses, uh, the Hesse Lewis family dynasty, the family donated land that now makes it part of the perimeter of the current property of the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. From a listener who goes by the name of Loudspeaker, MC. Uh, the next email someone sent to mail call at WTSPWorldBoard2.com, and we want to hear from you. Reach out to us. Let us know what you want to hear. Uh, maybe ideas on the show, thoughts, comments, complaints. We want to hear it all. Mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Hey, guys. First, I want to let you know that I love your show. You fine gentlemen were my second most listened to podcast on Spotify this year. He didn't tell us who number one was, but that's all right. We'll take number two. We're happy to take number two. I've been putting, nice. the, I've been putting this off long enough, but I want to give my thoughts about the movie Devotion. Like you guys, I know barely anything about the Korean War. I only found out about this movie through an interview with Glenn Powell, the gentleman who plays Tom Hudner. I originally wasn't going to go see the movie until I listened to your interview with Adam Makos. So I went out on the November 26th to go see it. Overall, I thought it was a good movie. The story seemed to have dragged in some spots, but it was awesome to see those Corsairs, planes flying, and how the fighter pilots did things back then before jet fighters took over. I did get emotional towards the end and I found myself really compelled by Jesse Brown's story. Overall, I think it's a fine movie, and I hope it gets... I'm sorry, and I hope we all get more Korean movies in the future, Korean war movies in the future. 
I wish you all a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I can't wait to see what you guys do on the next podcast. Sincerely, Joseph. Thank you, Joseph, and thank you, loudspeaker. And like I said before, we want to hear more and more content from you guys. Just email us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Yeah, it's always good to hear from, from our listeners and know that they're engaged. Yeah. It's it's nice to know that sometimes we're not just doing this for ourselves. So we yeah, absolutely. We definitely love hearing from you guys, and we definitely want to hear some um, nuggets of joy and um, suggestions for uh, future episodes. But it is that time of year, and we just came back. We were off for two weeks. And so uh, we're going to get into a little bit of uh, World War II history now that we've basically talked about everything but for the last 16 minutes. So uh, here we go. This film is being shown for the first time. It was captured from a German cameraman. He had taken it so that the German home front might gloat over the evidence of the success of Rundstedt's attack. In August, it was German convoys that were caught like this along the French roads. Now it was our convoys, ruined, burning where they'd been overrun. The sweat and iron of Detroit and Pittsburgh became the wreckage of Malmedy and Saint-Vite. We lost more than jeeps and half-tracks. We lost men, 78,000 in dead, wounded missing, unarmed and defenseless American prisoners, comrades of these men, fell to the machine guns of our enemies. Four weeks later, their frozen bodies, hands and ankles bound, were found where they fell. These Belgian enemies of the Third Reich, too, were unarmed and defenseless. Men who had not retreated since their arrival in Europe plodded back along the mean roads of winter Belgium. Convoys of trucks streamed to the rear with supplies that had been painstakingly accumulated at forward dumps. Top counterattacks, huge new reserves of supplies are called for. Anti-aircraft guns were fired point-blank as anti-tank guns until they were overrun. Cooks, bakers, quartermaster and line of communications troops picked up their rifles and fought tenaciously against Nazi columns. The weather cleared and the Air Force took to the skies to bomb and strafe and fight the rejuvenated Luftwaffe to the ground. The army held in Belgium. The attack was blunted, the spearhead stopped. The Nazi columns contained and thrown back by men who had flung themselves into the breach. In the wild gamble of war, a momentary equilibrium had been gained. The cost had been great, and there were no guarantees being issued on engraved paper on the Western Front that the time of counterattacks was over. Nor, despite the great victories in the Pacific, were there guarantees being issued that there would be no counterattacks against the many islands we'd won back. In the general uncertainty of war, one fact remains certain. The enemy is always dangerous. The enemy does not slack off. We would be remiss to go through this winter season without talking a little bit about the Battle of the Bulge. I know Henry and myself, and I think even Jeff, we were all reading Battle of the Bulge-based books. Say that four times fast. And even though Jeff is not here, Henry is here. And so we are going to go over a little bit of the Battle of the Bulge books. Battle of the Bulge-based books. Henry, what do you got for us, fella? Well, <clears throat> I am currently reading, pretty close to finishing up, this book by Charles B. McDonald called Company Commander. 
this is actually one of the books that Jeff sent to me, you know, and I know Donnie sent you a, a box with a, a gift and some books here <clears throat> several weeks ago. But I, when I saw this, I wanted to, I wanted to dig it out and read it when I, as soon as I finished what I was reading right before this. Um, but really compelling story. Um, this guy, Charles McDonald was, he actually ended up writing a book on, he became a historian after the war among other things, but he wrote a book about army operations in Europe. Uh, I believe the movie, and I think I've heard you pan this movie, the long or uh, time for trumpets. Mm. Haven't I heard you talk about that movie about the battle of the bulge of time for trumpets. Uh, was that the one with, uh, Ethan? No, that was no time for Trump's. I don't think I bagged it cause I don't know if I seen it. Well, the Charles McDonald wrote the book that was based on. Okay. And if I've read it, it's been a long time ago, but he was in I company 23rd infantry, second infantry division. Uh, later he was with G company, 23rd infantry. 2nd Infantry Division. 2nd um, Infantry Division is, of course, near and dear to my heart because <clears throat> my Uncle Edward, which, you know, here a few weeks ago, I read his uh, bronze, one of his Bronze Star citations on the show. Uh, December 16th of 19, or is actually December 15th, 1944, 741st Tank Battalion was trying to link up with 2nd Infantry Division in the Roshrath, Kringkelt, Vollerscheid area, which is the north shoulder of the Bulge, okay, sure. in the Ardennes. And uh, that's when Michael Edward got his uh, Bronze Star. But anything involving the 2nd Infantry Division, which the 741st Tank Battalion was attached to uh, through most of the fighting in Europe in World War II, anything on the 2nd Division is really interesting to me. And so... <clears throat> to read Charles McDonald's book has, has just been, it's, it's been something I've found very interesting. Let me pause real quick. Cause I was going to bring this up later and you should show me your book. What's the copyright on that book? It is that particular issue. What's the last copyright on it? The last copyright. Cause he wrote it right after the war. Okay? Can I guess but, I'm going to say 1994. So, say again. I'm going to say the last copyright was 1994. This copy, now this is a Bantam, cop, uh, Bantam paperback, okay? Keep in mind, Bantam, these guys, a Bantam war book, they did one of my dad's book with the Olbrey, mm -hmm. okay? This edition right here, <clears throat> copyright 1978. Okay. The reason I bring it up is I think it's a little wider, but I'm reading right now uh, Wing of a Prayer. It's one of the books Jeff sent me. Uh -huh. And it's the last copyrights in the 90s. And it has that weird, what I call the front pack size, meaning, um, you know, it's kind of like a, it's smaller but thicker because they, they try to make the footprint smaller as if to shove it into the front pouch of your overly full backpack. And, uh -huh. I, and I didn't right. know if that book you were reading was the same because anytime I pick up the, that size book, it kind of throws me off at first, but then you get used to it. And I mm -hmm. saw a lot of that size book and that shape book in the 90s. And I don't see it too much now. It's like in between... You know, it's just this weird, yeah, it's just a, it's a, they're real thick and, but yeah, and that's what my wing of prayer is, which is a real good book. Yeah. It's almost like yeah. they make them thicker. I think the first time I read, uh, winds of war and, uh, what is a worn remembrance? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were the big ass. Oh, good God. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, go ahead yeah. with your book. 
Yeah, man, the, the footprint of it is pretty small. But, yeah, it's the same size as the Bantam edition of with the old breed. Okay. Uh, and I remember when that came out. But um, I've really enjoyed it. I'm pretty close to finishing it. Um, <clears throat> but it's Army operations. I mean, you know, obviously my heart is in the Pacific with my, my dad's involvement and all that. But I have no lack of interest in U.S. Army operations in Europe. Uh, you know, obviously the organic tie for me is my uncle being a tank platoon commander, but, um, this, this memoir right here, and it was Charles McDonald's first book because he did write others. As I mentioned, uh, it's a great microscopic look into being an infantry company commander fighting the Germans in World War II. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that came up in there that you hadn't really heard of or gone over before as far as the um, subject of Battle of the Bulge? As far as Battle of the Bulge, man, I mean, they were, as we talked about earlier, I mean, the 2nd Division got in on the north shoulder um, pretty early on. I mean, they were, they were at the broken end of the bottle, man. I mean, they, because, you know, we, we when you... Being fans of Band of Brothers as we are mm -hmm. naturally and, and knowing that miniseries and becoming so intimately familiar with both the miniseries and Stephen Ambrose's book, you know, Bastone has kind of become an easy company, that, 101st, 506 sort of realm. I exactly. You know, it's, oh, Battle of the Bulge, Bastone, Bastone, Bastone. And kind of uh, unfair to the army if that's the only thing you know about the Battle of the Bulge is, well, the 101st, 506 came in to rescue the cowardice retreating army because you know the, oh it was you know they say in the book and then the you know it was weird for us to see and we we're very disappointed to see the army retreating as they did and as we we're going the opposite direction but after you start reading books like the one you're reading and the one i'm reading and you understood what the hell happened before the 506 showed up even in that area you can understand why those guys were retreating in the manner in which they were oh absolutely and and i would even go further and say that when you really I mean, I've read more about the North Shoulder mm -hmm. because of 741st Tank Battalion and and Vollershide and Krinkelt and Rotrath and all that. Elsenborn Ridge, Monschau. Um, that is really, if you really start peeling the layers back, I would, would say that the North Shoulder is just where so much of the crucial action occurred. Yep. I would agree. Was there a... Uh... I think you said there was a segment or a clip out of there you wanted to read. Man, I was thinking of just picking some random stuff out of here because it, you know, and I, I didn't have time because of being so busy at work today and then having to do stuff when I got home. I didn't have things pre-marked. No worries. But, um, um, <clears throat> you can peruse why I go over the longest winter. Have okay. you read this is book? Is that Kershaw's book? Have you read this book? Yes, this is Kershaw's book. I have. Book. It's been a long time ago, though. I want to reread it. It's funny you say that because I read through this and I'm one of those cats that, you know, with some of my disabilities, my retention isn't super great. So sometimes I need to read a book two or three times. As soon as I finish this, I skipped back to chapter two where the main battle took place. Just so not, once I knew exactly what happened to all these guys, I wanted to read, read, reread how that happened. Um, for those of you guys don't know, one of the things I like about this book and a majority of this book Yes, it's Battle of the Bulge, but actually a majority of this book is about being captured by Germans and surviving the horrible condition of the German 
POW camps. Um, I'm going to give you a kind of a quick, actually it's going to be kind of a long synopsis, but I think this book is very important and kind of as Henry and I just talked about without any pre-show agreement that I think when most people hear about the Battle of the Bulge, I think about the 506 and 101st Airborne and Easy Company and and um, the 99th Infantry Division took a shellacking, like literally. And so I'm just going to go over some of the broader points. This is going to take a few moments, so Henry, feel free to peruse your other book if you want to find some stuff to read. But for, yeah, those, I'm, I'm, for those of you guys joining us at home, um, brief minor history of the 99th Inf- Infantry Division. They're formed on 1942 and de- deployed overseas in 1944. The checkerboard, or the Battle Baby Division, landed on the French port of La Havre and proceeded northeast to Belgium. During the heaviest fightings of the Battle of the Bulge, the unit suffered many casualties yet tenaciously held its defensive position. Now, I'm going to destroy some of these German names of cities and towns. Forgive me. Um, I did read a review on our podcast one time, and one of the biggest complaints was my inability to pronounce German names appropriately. And so for that, I'm sorry, but hey, at least we're honest. Um, The stand at uh, Lanzareth, that's L-A-N-Z-E-R-A-T-H, Lanzareth, the Intelligence and Reconnaissance Platoon, the 394th Infantry Regiment of the 99th Division, was the most decorated platoon for, for a single action in World War II. During the, morning, the, during the first morning of the Battle of the Bulge, they defended a key road junction in the vicinity of, La, of the Lazem Gap. The Lazem Gap. God, I'm destroying us. <laughs> Led by Loshan t- Gap. Loshan Gap, yes, thank you. Led by the 20-year-old Lieutenant Lyle Buck, Jr., uh, they delayed the advance of the 1st SS Panzer Division, at the spearhead of the entire German 6th Panzer Army, for nearly 20 hours. In a long fight with about 500 men of the 1st Battalion, 9th Flossenjäger Regiment, the 3rd Flossenjäger Division, and 18 men of the platoon, along with 4 artillery observer, um, sorry, inflicted between the 60th and more than 100 casualties on the Germans. The platoon, the platoon seriously disrupted the entire German 6th Panzer Army scheduled for attack on the northern edge of the offensive, so similar to the same area you were talking about with the 2nd uh, Infantry. Mm-hmm. At dusk on the 16th of December, after virtually no sleep during the preceding night and a full day of almost nonstop combat, with only a few roads, I'm sorry, with only a few rounds of ammunition remaining, about 50 German paratroopers finally flanked and captured the remaining 19 soldiers out of this entire division. Two men who were sent on foot to regimental headquarters to seek reinforcements were later captured. 14 of the 18 pl- platoon members were wounded, while only one soldier, a member of the artillery observation team, was killed. Because the unit's radios had been destroyed, the soldiers captured in the rap- rapid subsequent German advance, the United States Army commanders did not know about the unit's success to, at slowing down the German advance or even if they had been captured or killed. <clears throat> the, pl- the platoon members were not recognized for the courageous deeds for 37 years. On the 25th of October, 1981, the entire platoon was recognized with a pr- presidential unit of citation. Every member of the platoon was decorated uh, with which included the Distinguished Service Cross, five silver stars, and 10 bronze stars with a V designation signifying awards of valor in combat. And the reason why it took 30 years to get recognized, apparently back then, um, 
combat groups didn't get their just desserts, if you will, until the commander of said groups were debriefed. And during that debrief process, kind of like in the aforementioned Band of Brothers, they would send in a report of the action, what happened, the after-action report, who did what, yada, yada, yada. Well, because just about everybody in this division and platoons were decimated and or captured, the uh, lead commander, who was also um, captured, was in such bad shape after surviving like four months in prison camps that he was damn near dead when they liberated his camp that one of his friends who was also a higher up basically put him in a Jeep and drove him straight to the hospital, thus bypassing the whole um, debriefing and checking out when they basically cataloged and inventoried the prison camps and they basically checked each person out, got their ranks, their stories, debriefed them, yada, yada, yada. Well, because he bypassed all that because he was almost dead and went to a hospital and then went back home. It wasn't until 30 years later that they actually, after kind of like Stephen Ambrose type stories, someone in the newspaper did a story on him. Mm-hmm. And then people started looking around saying, well, wait a minute. And more and more veterans, more and more of the guys who were there started coming out and telling their story that it wasn't until later, 30 years later, that they were able to get their service crosses. Um, one of the things that come from this book, too, is are you familiar with the, um, what do they call that? Uh, the um, bomb, task force bomb. B-A-U-M. Yep, B-A-U-M. I have heard of that. I'm not going to read this verbatim. I'm just going to go over the finer points. So um, word got back to Patton that his son-in-law may be in uh, the same prison camp as the uh, the guys who got taken captured from the 99th Division. And, well, he was concerned that the way the war was going, that maybe the Germans would get a little um, hasty and start wiping out POWs. And so um, he did a little looking around, and his first two choices weren't able to make the uh, the drive. And so he got 24-year-old 10th Armored Division's S2, Abraham Brahm, to uh, get a handful of tanks and half-tracks, haul ass through German-occupied territory, get to the prison camp, um, he sent along his personal aide who could identify Patton's son-in-law with the goal of grabbing him and about 150 other NCOs and um, just turning around and leaving and coming back later for the rest of the guys. During this advance, um, Bomb took lots of hits, lost a handful of tanks, but made it to the prison gate where some of the German guards proceeded to attack. Um Sadly, one part of the camp had a lot of oh, um, prisoners. Uh, do, do, do. Sorry, I want to get the I want to get the name right. <coughs> Slavic. Uh, that uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, do, do, do. I'm sorry. Anyhow, um, this one part of the camp had foreign prisoners who wore great trench coats that looked a lot like the German uniforms. And so when the tank and the infantry came in, they saw the, that area and they thought it was a um, kind of a gathering area camp for the Germans. And so those particular prisoners took a lot of casualties because of the um, winter uniforms they were wearing. During that time, the um, German heads of the prison camp just so happened to grab Pat and son-in-law and say, hey, uh, can you go outside and organize our surrender? We don't want to get taken out by these tanks. And so as... Uh, Patton's son-in-law, a German commander, and two other um, prisoners were walking out. Um, a German shot him in the butt. 
shot him from the back. They proceeded to tell him. And by the way, it was Colonel John uh, Waters was Patton's son-in-law. So as Colonel John Waters was walking out there with a German uh, prisoner and two other American prisoners, like I said, a German shot him in the back, shot him in the ass. And now the one prisoner that Baum was sent to get, along with whoever else he can get NCOs, was now shot and taken back to the hospital area. And after a little bit of a skirmish, Baum succeeded, quote-unquote liberated the uh, camp until he realized there was about 3,000 people there. He was told there's going to be about 200 people there and to bring most of them back. And so now he had a conundrum. He lost half his half tracks, a handful of his tanks, and there's 3,000 people in his camp that he was told that there was only about 300. And so he um, tried to find Waters, who was now in a hospital. He couldn't make the long ride back. And so basically, Baum said, hey, um, I can take 200 NCOs and anybody who can walk if you want to get in a column. You're more than welcome to walk back behind us. Well, you're in German-occupied territory. you got a handful of tanks and a few half-tracks and a bunch of POWs stacked up on top of them. The task force left the camp at 8 p.m. local time to cross back across the German lines. By then, future complications had surfaced. There was no moon, and so they had to... The, so only artificial light could be used for navigation, which could be spotted easily by the growing number of German troops in the area. Only one reconnaissance jeep was able to scout ahead of the column to find the escape route. Sometimes the tanks had to be turned off internally to avoid detection by the growing number of Germans walking around. So yeah, in the book, they're talking about how they literally had to cut all the motors of all the jeeps, all the half-tracks, all the tanks, and wait for these huge columns of Germans to march by in the distance and pray that they didn't you know, the engines weren't heard. Nearing Hollerich, in the, back, in the black of night, Task Force Bomb encountered a German ambush laid by veteran soldiers of the German Infantry Combat School of Hamelburg, nearly 100 NCOs and officers in training. The first tank was hit by a German Panzerfaust, abandoned, and then was captured. Uh, the remnants of the task force regrouped again after pulling back to a quiet area near Hill 427 in the early morning hours. Without enough fuel to make it back across the lines by now, the task force waited for daylight travel with visibility to maximize the distance they could, could hit without stopping. Um, let's see. One of the colonels who was a prisoner in the camp who went along with the tanks, his name was uh, Colonel Agudi, Knowing most of the men would be unable to travel across the line of their own free will, advised most of them, most of the walking wounded, that they should head back to the prison camp of Offlag, O-F-L-A-G, Offlag. 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 Yeah. See, I told you I'd destroy these. Colonel Goody himself decided not to slow the rest of the tank force down and began the march back under a white flag. Bomb gave the order to move out shortly after dawn at March 28th. Just as the column started up by the just as the column started up, an immediate they immediately came under fire from all directions. So at night the Germans knew they were there. And they basically zeroed in all their mortars, all their anti tank, all you know, as the clips had to be pre registered. They just pre registered anything. And as soon as the light came up, and as soon as they sparked the engines on those Jeeps and the tanks, they just laid in on them. Um, as I just said, Germans have surrounded the hill during the night, opened fire at the first sign of mobilization, knowing that there was no way for the, to fend off the attack. 
Bomb ordered every man for himself. The battle lasted more a mere five to ten minutes before the survivors who hadn't escaped into the woods were lined up as fresh POWs. Bomb managed to escape with two soldiers into the nearby woods, and at, as did a, a number of other American POWs from the camp. Um, Bomb was Jewish and discarded his dog tags, believing he would be shot on sight if he was identified. Um, basically, what came down of it as the scuttlebutt was that Patton promised Baum a uh, Medal of Honor if he was able to get in there and get those guys out. But with Medal of Honors come investigations. And after this rescue plan was so badly foiled and the amount of tanks and half-tracks and personnel lost, not to mention the amount of POWs killed in the rescue attempt, the whole thing kind of just you know looked bad for Patton. And so instead of uh, pushing through the Medal of Honor and the investigation, he merely personally presented Baum with the Distinguished Medal, uh, the Service Cross, and just kind of swept it under the rug. And that's also why, you know, a lot, lot of the 99th didn't get any recognition until 30 years later, because they're in a prison camp. Uh, there was a foiled top-secret attempt to, to rescue them because Patton's son-in-law was there. Uh, the lead commander was so sick and malnourished, by the time he left, he lost 60 pounds. He was damn near dead when they liberated him. He got put into a Jeep and rushed off, as I said earlier. And so no final debriefing of any of the actions that these guys took were ever documented until close to 30 years later. Oh, wow. And that's just a, a brief nugget. So if you guys want a firsthand account, a better account than my horrible retelling of the accounts of what it's like to survive, not one, but every time they got to a prison camp a few months later, a few weeks later, they'd be put back on those trains, what are the 48 and 8s they called them, and then schlepped down to another one. Yeah, 40 and 8s. 40, 40 and men eights. or 8 horses, yeah. Now, I don't know why I get a kick out of this stuff, but I do. So I'm reading this book, and as some of you all know, I live in southwest Florida. And in southwest Florida, where I live, I live in Cape Coral. Across the river from Cape Coral is Fort Myers. And to the north of Fort Myers, actually to the south of Fort Myers, is Lehigh Acres. Actually, be southeast. Actually, I guess Lehigh's technically kind of in between Cape Coral and Fort Myers. The reason I bring that up is I'm looking through this book. And as most of these books do, they have a couple pages of some photographs that were submitted by you know, the author, or the family, some museums who had information on the, the tale. And I'm reading, going through this book, and I doubt you guys will be able to see it because of the glossiness, but there are some hand-drawn pictures of the inside of the prison camps. And there's one on the bottom. It shows the corridor. You have two. You've got a set of bunk beds here, four beds at the bottom, four beds at the top, simply plywood nailed together, two-by-fours. Same thing. The caption says, Sketches of a typical Stalag POW camp. Drawings by Robert Neary, Lehigh Acres, Florida. Courtesy Dauntless, published by Taylor Publishing Company, 1994. So it's kind of cool to think that this guy survived this prison camp just to move to the town where I'm at now um, in 1994. And then even though they misspelled it in the back, they're talking about it during the award ceremonies and all that. Um, let's see here. Bill Slap had retired from the U.S. Army only 13 years before having ended his military service as a sergeant major. With enormous pride, he now stood in front of the he now stood in his uniform once more. This time, surrounded by his family in a hotel foyer in Maryland, they're headed to Fort Myers, 
into a special award ceremony attended by the Army Secretary John O. Marsh, Jr. So there's two references to my town in this book, which I thought... It's one of those small world type things again. But yeah, who would have who would have expected that? But truly, if you guys want some information about the Battle of the Bulge, check out the Longest Winter. And I think Jeff even said he was getting ready to start reading this book as well. So it'd be interesting to get his take on that when he comes back from the show. And real quick, um, just from that failed mission, Task Force Bomb, um, they left with eleven officers and three hundred and three men, sixteen tanks, twenty eight half tracks, and thirteen other vehicles. Thirty two people were killed. 256 wounded, missing, and or captured. All tanks and vehicles were destroyed. And now you know why Patton kind of covered it up, because that that was like his biggest loss in combat of any group that he ever sent out. He lost 16 tanks, 28 half-tracks, and 13 other vehicles completely. None of them came back. 256 wounded and missing or captured out of 303. Well, plus the... So out of 314 people. That's a... Tremendous failure of a of a recovery mission. Yeah, no kidding. And they, the scuttlebutt is, is that he didn't know his son-in-law was there by looking at his diaries. But then some people recovered a letter that he wrote to his uh, his wife. And in that letter, he claims that he he um, did know, and that let's see here. Um, Diaries that were made public by Patton, um, diaries that Patton made publicly available indicated he was unaware of Waters' presence until after the task force had arrived. But a letter written to his wife just after the task force left indicates otherwise. Quote, I sent a column to the place 40 miles east of where John Waters and some 900 prisoners are said to be. I have to be nervous as a cat, as everyone but me thought... It was too great of a risk. If I lose that column, it will possibly be a new is- incident, but I won't lose it. Possibly a new incident, because anybody knows anything about Patton, he was constantly getting into incidences that got the higher up in the brass, you know, not too happy with him. Yeah, he was a high profile kind of guy. Yep. Very about himself. So. so- you, you want to talk about company commander? Please we'll do. We'll give you a little snippet of some action from Please that. Please do, because you do a far superior job of reading life than I do. I, no, I don't think that at all. But So, Charles McDonald, on the back, real quick, I'm going to read this. What it's like to face enemy fire in the vicious war on the ground. This story of a young infantry captain leading men in battle in World War II is one of the most brutally honest accounts of combat ever written. Charles McDonald was 21 years old when he was given command of Company I, 23rd Infantry. His men had fought their way ashore at Normandy on D plus one, had battled their way through St. Lowe, and stormed the ring of pillboxes at Brest. McDonald had never been in battle. Dirty, tired, frightened, constantly under fire, McDonald knew that he was responsible for other men's lives and that any mistake by him could mean their death. So he. The company had already been through Normandy when he joined them. Okay, so we're going to dive right in here. This is like page 138. I just I just found a passage that I thought just was pretty illustrative of the kind of action that you see if you pick this book up to read it. We're, we're, we're in action on the north shoulder of the bulge here. I went with Captain Montgomery back to the barn outside. It was dark now. War was all around me still, but I felt much better. 
there would be courage to go on. I still did not know what had happened to my company, but I could believe now that they might have made their way out of the forest along the route taken by Company L. Sparky, Lieutenant Middlebrook, Wright, and Buteri were in the barn. The two men and two officers and Albin, Diederich, and myself made a total of seven men from Company I. They seemed as glad to see me as I was to see them. We heard you were killed, Captain, Sparky said. The the idea seemed remote and far away, and I laughed. We know a lot of your men ended up in Kringkelt and Rotrath, Captain Montgomery said. The colonel and I are going there now to contact L Company. They got out pretty light except for an artillery barrage after they left the woods. We'll send them and any of your men we find to meet you here. You dig in with L Company to defend the right flank of the Ninth. There's no one between them and Rotrath. We found a pile of fresh hay in the end of the barn facing the enemy. I dug out an armful and spread it in a rear corner of the barn. I was cold. My clothes were soaked and my feet were drenched, but I pulled a portion of the hay over me and drifted off into a sleep of utter exhaustion. Just a couple more paragraphs on this passage. It was neither the sound of the tanks firing, nor the artillery exploding, nor the staccato chant of automatic weapons that woke me. I seemed to hear them somewhere in the background, but my fatigued body did not respond. Someone was shaking me. Wake up, Captain. Wake up. The sons of bitches have hit us again. They're all over the goddamn place. I jumped to my feet. The sound of battle in my ears was real now, and I could see the flash of tracer bullets as they passed the open door. Where's L Company? I asked. They didn't get here, the soldier answered, and I could not make out who he was in the darkness. The others are gone. We better get the hell out. With that, he was gone from the barn. I did not think to pick up my carbine. I looked toward the forward end of the barn where the hay had been stored. A tank was firing point blank into the barn. The dry, haze, the dry hay was a mass of flame. I ran from the barn. The surrounding area was lit up from the flames and the paths of thousands of fiery tracer bullets. I saw a soldier silhouetted against the tracers throw a can of gasoline at a tank. The tank burst into flame. So it's a pretty good action. And I mean, it just goes on and on like this. I mean, like I said, man, North shoulder of the bulge and especially the second division and not, and they certainly were by no means the, the only one. I mean, you, you had the 106th division, which was largely taken prisoner, I think in the Monshell forest. Uh, but really heavy action, really intense stuff. And he, he talks a lot about fighting with tanks, which obviously interests me hugely because I'm thinking, you know, my, my uncle was somewhere in the midst of all that. You know, in the, in the longest winter, as I was talking about there, talking about the uh, POW camps, not only do you get the firsthand account of Lyle Buck Jr. and some of these other guys who went in relatively unscathed, but then you had guys like Private Bill James who, during the battle that resulted in them getting captured, he took mm-hmm. a PPSH burp gun to the face. Um, Lyle Buck Jr. kind of felt responsible because as the gun kind of peeked into their shelter door, he grabbed the barrel of it and pushed it away, and that's how Private Bill James got shot in the face, and he got shot mm-hmm. in the mouth. And so he was taken prisoner, got no medical attention, and he talks about how his front teeth were embedded into the top of his mouth because once again he got shot in the face with a PPSH. 
or burp gun, if you will. And they're talking about how they were captured. They were taken to this post office or the store where the uh, German command was trying to get things done and how they laid on that floor for two days and how they were put on trains and him being shot in the face and his teeth in his mouth and another guy who got shot. And so even the guys who got shot didn't get any real medical attention until weeks and days on the trains. They're talking about how they were in those train cars. They they actually went to uh, pulled up in front of Auschwitz, sat in the train car for two days before they got moved out. Never never let off the train. Talking about the horrible conditions on the train. Um, they go over a lot of detail about the food they were and weren't fed. Uh, many of the stories we've heard before about how the German command would get the the uh, first aid because. Geneva Convention hypothetically states that POWs were to get Red Cross care packages. Sure. Red, yeah. Red Cross sends care packages. You distrib- distribute them. But as one can imagine, when you've got a military that doesn't have the ability to feed their own troops, uh, those troops are going to go through the care package first, take what they want, and of get what's left. And POWs are not going to be a priority. And so, and we know how Germans back then cared for prisoners. They really didn't. And so a lot of those guys ended up starving to death or making it through. And after the war, you know, they're talking about how their muscles atrophied. And they, one of the descriptions was when they, even after they got liberated, went through the hospital, got on their dietary regiment, because as we learned from Band of Brothers, you just can't eat. Your stomach will blow up. So they have to slow. But one of the, descriptions one of the guys explained is he walked out of the hospital in his meat suit because his skin was just dead de- even after he was quote unquote back to health his skin was just hanging off his body because he had no muscle tone left he was just yeah. and how they suffered for years with you know hepatitis and meningitis and all the horrible itises that come from malnutrition and eating horrible things and just the bad shape these guys were in for years and years and years. And so no, they, it was debilitating effects for the rest of their lives in some cases. And, and I mean, we, you know, we're obviously we're, we're doing a German European bulge thing here tonight. Yeah, sure. but I mean, as bad as the, what that was Don. think about, you know, it, it's, you, you can't get away from the fact that they, those guys had it better than the prisoners of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Oh Yeah. But but that's a you know that's a conversation for another show right there. But <clears throat> oh, absolutely. But yeah. So if you want a, a good firsthand account on the Battle of the Bulge, it has nothing to do with the Airborne Division. Um, read the Longest Winter and the book that uh, Henry was going over. It was the Commander or the Commander? Company Commander. Company Commander by Charles B. McDonald. By Charles B. McDonald. So you learn a lot about the Second Infantry as well as the 99th Division and uh, the sacrifices that those guys definitely made. I will say, um, I don't, you know, kind of been doing a long version of what we've been reading, but I'm now reading that Wing and a Prayer. That is a good book. Who wrote that? Oh crap! You asked me. Um, Cos- Crosby, that uh, Navigator Crosby, uh, Wing and a Prayer. Crosby. Uh, Wing and a Prayer: The Bloody Hundredth Bomb Group by. Uh, Did you say Harry Crosby? Harry H. Crosby, yep. That's who wrote it. Okay. Familiar with him? Yeah, I I have heard of him. It's 
it's written from his person and it's cool because he talks about how he kind of went from being a navigator stuck in rear end charlie as you're familiar with the vernacular that's the guy stuck in the back of the flight group. tail end charlie right tail end charlie and Basically, his job then was to use a gun that had about a 10-degree angle that you really couldn't shoot anything with and to log entries. Mm-hmm. At this time, mm-hmm. we passed over here. At this time, so-and-so got shot down. To one day, I'm uh, getting woke up to go on a training flight with the lead. And then how he slowly basically went from being a really no-name kick-around navigator to being a lead group navigator for the entire <laughs> you know, his wing of the, the hundredth bomb group. And so I'm not sure where, how far that goes. Cause I'm only halfway through, but it's a damn good book. You learn a lot. And it's been, it's been um, quoted as being one of the most accurately detailed books on the, um, procedures and, um, all o- over being of B 17s in flight. You know, I mean, he goes through everything, you know, it's one of the most detailed books as far as, navigating even what the pilots do it's as someone who's and that that that's the stuff right that's the stuff that guys like you and jeff and i love you and know it, i mean I don't, I don't just want to hear the emotional stuff i mean the visceral stuff you know the humanity and all that and that's important uh and those are certainly crucial elements of any good war memoir but man i i want to hear about the guy talking about strapping into his flight gear i want to hear about him strapping into the cockpit you know what he what his routine was what switches did he throw first you know talking about the checklist and all that. i mean th- those really just ground level detail i mean I, I guys like us love that stuff and he was talking about he flew on one of the other planes and he the guy who ended up writing 12 o'clock high um he talking about him being in his flight group and all that stuff and um great detail he kept such great notes he could tell you what day like for example i i i've said before i'm not really into the air Corps stuff i am now i never knew about the high squadron the low squadron the medium squadron right. and all the different you know i didn't know that it was basically one guy's job to rendezvous all, like the lead navigator in the middle flight his job was to get his flight group to a rendezvous point at the right time as the high squadron and the low squadron. And it was basically come down to one guy with one guy in reserve to think, make think all that shit happen. Yeah. <laughs> think of the level of responsibility on that guy. On like a 22 year old. Yeah. And he, you know, the, the movie with Gregory Peck, which we love 12 o'clock high, you know, and that, that when he, you know, when Savage goes down there to, to see, what Keith Davenport and try to figure out why they had such a bad bomb run that day. And it turned, they bring the young guy in who's a navigator and he missed a checkpoint. You know, remember that mm-hmm. it's been a long time since I've seen it, but, but, you know, but that, that kind of is like a quick illustration of, you know, if you're that, you're that navigator, man, your, your calculations have got to be spot on because you've got so many airplanes. So each of, each of which has 10 guys in it. Mm-hmm. And they're riding on your call mm-hmm. and your cue and you didn't got to be on it. And this book, you really realize the division of labor as far as, okay, what exactly the navigator is responsible for? What exactly the bombardier is responsible for? I actually hit him controlling the plane from, you know, so far out to the bombs are dropped and the right. pilot, you know, pilot hands that over. I didn't know LeMay was one of the only, um, CEO, the commanding officers who, was trained as a pilot, a navigator, and a bombardier. There's a lot of stuff about Linda May in that book, um, mm-hmm. about him knowing, um, 
because uh, Crosby was talking about he was brought to this meeting and um, and LeMay asked him, said, you know, what happened on this bomb run? Why 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 did it fail? And he said, I don't know. I wasn't, you know, I I wasn't on that run, or I was a, you know, I wasn't in his position. And LeMay asked one of the commanders, well, "Was he doing in here?" He's like, "Well, actually, he's flying these now, and he's responsible for this one mission that they had a great turnaround for. I forget the name of it." And LeMay is like, "Oh, you must be Crosby." And basically, what LeMay was trying to get the pilots to admit to was that the reason some of these bomb runs failed so horribly was is that these higher commands i guess and you know this better than i do a um wing command who basically the commander over that whole particular wing would fly in the co-pilot seat of the lead plane co-pilot mm-hmm. kicked in the back and a lot of these guys were you know more concerned about themselves in the mission and so when the bombardier is trying to 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 navigate the plane to drop the bomb these high command guys would get nervous and just steal their uh, aileron and fly the plane out of danger and that would cause a lot of these missions to fail and and LeMay was kind of trying to get them to admit it without them realizing like Crosby's the only one to realize because he's like oh LeMay was trained as a bombardier he knows that the bombardier is controlling for X amount and he was also trained as a navigator so he knows and so because of his training he was able to look at logs and look at bomb runs and figure out who was responsible for things going awry because the way the plane either moved or navigated, he could tell, well, that wasn't done by the bombardier when he was in control, and that wasn't done by the navigator by his logs. It was over-jumpy pilots, over-jumpy wing commanders and all that. Didn't When we had James Scott on the show several months ago, didn't he talk about that? Because obviously he's done a lot of research on LeMay. He, pros- he probably did. We've I ha- seem to recall something about that. Yeah, and so um, I'm sure there's more on LeMay in there, too, but that's a great book, um, especially if you're like me, don't know a whole lot about the Air Corps, and you want to jump into it. A lot of action, a lot of missions, and uh, very interesting stuff there. So that's an, that's what I've been reading um, after finishing The Longest Winter. But um, And you're still now. What, what book do you have lined up next? I am either going to dive into my buddy James Holland's book, um, Big week about the huge bomber offensive in February of, of 43, I believe it was. It may have been 44, uh, but it's it's called Big Week. It's an in-depth look at, at that major B-17, well, not just B-17s, but <clears throat> major heavy bomber offensive against Germany. Or the other book I may read, Don, is our buddy Jared Frederick's book, Hang Tough. Yeah, that's a great book. If I, if I don't, I'm, I'm going to do those two books. I'm not sure which order. I, I still need to get his Spears book. I got Hang Tough. I read it. That's a good read. Um, you'll really enjoy that. The nice thing about Hang Tough, if you guys are Band of Brothers, Dick Winters fans, you want to get Hang Tough because there's a lot of unpublished stuff in there because basically the book is based around letters that Dick Winters wrote to a pen pal that was previously unpublished in any real format. And exactly. so you learn more about Dick Winters as a person as a leader and as a um up to certain point he becomes a major but through his promotions and his time and service how he felt about gold bricks how he felt about people who didn't want to do their jobs how he felt about certain other branches of the military um how he could be a little straightforward and somewhat stern with other people you really learn a lot about the man and there's some great photos and, and great letters in there so definitely check out hang tough 
that is a definite add to your Band of Brothers collection or your Dick Winters collection. So that's and the- you know, Don, the thing about Hang Tough that is so compelling for me. Obviously, our buddy Jared wrote it, mm-hmm. but you know the project I'm working mm-hmm. on myself. Hang Tough, you have some original source material yep. that's never been seen, mm-hmm. and then Jared's adding his voice as connective interstitial tissue, if you will. Sure. To, to create a cohesive narrative. I think you'll get is, a lot out of that book. I think, huh? I think you will personally get a lot out of that book with what you're working on. Exactly. So that, that the formatting and just the way he does it is very compelling to me. I mean, obviously anything about easy company, I'm, I'm, you've got me right there, but the way that book is done, the format, the general approach to it is going to be really interesting for me. And the other thing I like is Jared and I actually talked about this on the phone one night. I like for Dick's for Dick Winter's letters. He uses that old type face. Yep. And I've actually maybe toyed with the idea of possibly using that typeface for my dad's unpublished. I'll do words. that. Um, I kind of find italics is a little hard to read, so I like the the old type bold face. Uh, Fierce Valor, the true stories of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. That's the other. I want to read that. That's too. the other one I got to get. I want to add that to my list. Right Spears now. Spears was one of my favorite characters. Yeah, and there's a lot of you know information. Once again, um, some insight that probably a lot of you hadn't heard before just based off of what you've read in band of brothers and watching the movie so this is more about you know spears and you're going to probably learn a lot more about the man the myth and the legend on that one so those are all some good books to check out but i think hey that's going to wrap it up for the first episode of 2023 once again we're five years into this and i want to thank everybody for your continued support and if you want to support us more please head over to wtspworldwar2.com which by the way I got one more session to load, but if you guys follow us on Facebook or Instagram, you notice that I have posted two series of United States Marine Corps haversacks, my 1942 Boyt, my 1943 Boyt Lower. I have a group, which, by the way, this is a segment on our website we call History Through Photos. I have two more to release, which would be my 1945 Boyt haversack and then the aforementioned uh, 1942 Boyt Marine Corps officers pack. And... What I think is interesting about these, like, well, who cares about three different years worth of haversacks? Well, the interesting thing is, as historians, it's important to know about the war effort materials and lack thereof. And I don't own one yet. Maybe I will. But the early 1941 haversacks, the, sn- the, the buckles were actually riveted on instead of sewn on. So the very original version was riveted on. And then when you go to the 42, when supplies start to get shorter... What I'm getting at is if you actually look at the different ways the, the packs were made, how they're cut, um, you can see how we were cutting back on material. By the end of the war, the haversack was literally a potato sack that they just folded over. It didn't have the nice flaps, the nice cut. You'll see when I release those photos, it's literally just a sack. They sewed at the bottom, they folded over and put the straps on. Yep. So you can see a tremendous amount of change in the cut and the material used from 1941 up to 1945 on something as basic as the Marine Corps haversack, which it's those little things I find interesting. Just like when you look at canteens, you can see how, you know, early on they tried porcelain and they found out the porcelain cracked and they were expensive and much like the, uh, 
Thompson submachine guns, another one, M1928 machine gun, and the M1A1 all the way down to, well, let's just go with the grease gun because we can stamp them out at GM for $22 a piece. So it's always sure. interesting yeah. to me to see how the equipment changes as we start to things run long and materials get a little thinner. So, uh, yeah, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and look at the history through photos. You can see some cool stuff there. And while you're there, click on that Patreon link, sign up, subscribe. Uh, we got three plans. One's a dollar a month. The other one's three fifty a month, and the other one's seven fifty a month. We'll be happy if you sign up for the dollar a month plan. It goes a long way to support what we do here. And if you know, I know with inflation being what it is, you, you know, you can't afford to sign up for Patreon. You just you know, things are too tight. I completely understand. And the way you can support our show without costing a dime, quarter, nickel, or penny, is just to share us. You know, post us on Facebook. Send us to a friend who has an interest in you know the history and just. You know, word of mouth goes a long way, and that's the best way to build an audience. So I just want to thank everybody for myself, Henry Sledge, and uh, Jeff Copsetta, who should be back hopefully next week. Um, we are the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I usually play the beloved theme song music, but we covered that at the beginning of the show. So until we get a new theme song, thank you guys, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>